their stories being told. By people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. Welcome to Live Patrol, an edutainment podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history and mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, we hope you learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or in the cell to astound your family, friends, or the man not so kind. The headlines are ear-catching, that-can't-be-true factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week there will be two little lies thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. My name is Michael. My name is Brenna. And the topic this week is... Parachutes, brother. (laughs) It's parachutes. It's parachutes. Not wrestling. Parachutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, nobody said you can't do a wrestling parachute story. Did you do a wrestling parachute story? Because I did not. Well, if I did, I wouldn't tell you, would I? I don't know. You're going to tell me here in about five minutes anyways. That is true. Okay, you've got me there, sir. How do you feel about this topic today? Parachuting. I've I have literally had these stories for probably years at this point. We haven't even been doing doing this podcast for years, and I have had these stories for that long. I like how you're just sitting on top of these stories. Like one day I'm going to tell somebody this. I'm going to tell the world. They're incredible. Okay. This was the this is one of the easiest episodes I've ever had to write. Which was the opposite for me because I had zero stories on parachuting because why would I? Anyways, <laughs> now I have. So many stories. Ugh. Before we start, we apologize in advance for any mispronunciations that occur. We tried to do our due diligence to find the correct pronunciations of names and places, but there will be a couple times this episode where we fall short. And by we, I mean me. Apparently, I'm the only one with problems. Yeah, I probably won't have problems speaking because I am in the biz, so. You're in the speaking biz now, too? Yeah, word biz. Same thing. Okay, hit me with your three. Number one. Italy altered course of warfare history with parachuting sheep. Okay. Number two, lingerie company made parachutes for World War II pigeons. <laughs> Why do p- pigeons need parachutes? Are they halo jumping? Do, do, or do they pass out when you throw them out of the plane? <laughs> you have to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'll repeat that one one more time. Lingerie company made parachutes for World War II pigeons. World War II pigeons. Okay, well, there's a problem right there. And number three, Utah Fishing Game dropped elk from planes with parachutes. No way! That's awesome! Wait, they dropped elk? Yeah. Well, I mean, that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um. Shoot. <laughs> You got so excited there for a second. Yeah, because I was like, "Oh my god!" They the fish and wild fish and wildlife drop elk. That's awesome. Oh wait, that's pretty close to one of mine. Oh no! <laughs> oh, this is it. This is the episode. I knew this was gonna happen. <laughs> I know what your story is. <laughs> And you're going to know what mine is. <laughs> okay, well, the first one's definitely true, so why don't you start with that? <sighs> first one is true, he says. Italy altered course of warfare history with parachuting sheep. Okay, to start this off, let's talk about Italy's part in what is called the Scramble for Africa. Michael, what is the Scramble for Africa? Uh, is that the uh, 
northern Af- uh, Africa uh, war <laughs> in World War Two. No, uh, uh, basically it was like the the British versus like the Axis powers, and you had Germany and Italy on on the one side, on the Axis side, and. Wow. No, yeah. not at all. Oh, okay. This is well, not at all. <laughs> oh. I really thought you were going to know. No, I... Well, it's also not breakfast either, so... Oh. <laughs> the scramble. Get it? Okay, That's... well, that was off the fly, and it was not good. Okay. Don't become a dad. So... <laughs> Too late! I'm kidding. I'm not a dad. Okay, so the scramble for Africa was the race by seven European nations, notably Britain... Italy, France, Switzerland, or not Switzerland. Anyways, a bunch of them uh, racing to colonize Africa. And everybody wanted a little piece. So they call it the scramble. Okay. Uh, Yeah, that's basically why everybody's owned there or was owned there by a European group. (laughs) Now, in 1895, the Italians had already seized control of Eritrea in a previous conflict that took place in 1887-ish. That conflict ended with the Emperor of Ethiopia, King Menelik II, and Count Pietro Antonelli of Italy signing the Treaty of Vucele. I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't know how that is said. Uh, in 1889 as a friendly trade agreement. But when it was found that the treaty, which had been made in both Italian and Amarenia, had different translations in each language, King Menelik II denounced the treaty and Italy decided to just go for the whole shebang and take Ethiopia. And that's why Ethiopia is Italian today. Oh, wait. Maybe not. He's looking at me very scared. (laughs) They're not. Uh, (laughs) I'm still trying to figure out what sheep have to do with this. We are in the very beginning of the story. War is complicated, Michael. Jeez. Okay. Sheep are not complicated. Sheep are complicated, Michael. Anyways, this did not fare well for the Italians, and with a huge defeat at the Battle of Adawa... In 1889, Ethiopia kept its sovereignty. But that was only the first Italo-Ethiopian War. Fast forward to what we're talking about, which historians call the Second Italo-Ethiopian War, or the Second Italo-Abyssinian War, my bad, or the third attempt to make Ethiopia into a spicy meatball. That's kind of (laughs) rude. What's rude? Nothing, keep going. (laughs) I don't understand. Just for the record, this whole opposition between Italy and Ethiopia is one of those cases that makes it very clear that history is whatever the most first world historians agree it to be. However, no one can even agree on dates, what is considered a war, when wars have ended, etc. It's a little silly. But back to the story. It's October of 1935, when with no warning or declaration, Italy attacked Ethiopia with 200,000 soldiers via Eritrea. This was not really a surprise to most of the European powers as France, Britain, Italy, Germany, etc., etc., continued to make treaties, break treaties, and use smaller countries, including those in Africa, as bargaining chips. So after having built up their military power and prowess, with little an outside word to deter them, Italy decided they would finally get to take over Ethiopia like they always wanted. Isn't that great? And they rode sheep through Eritrea. Wow, that is such Euro boss energy. You go, Italy. My God. Still trying to figure out what it has to do with sheep. You're not really having a good time. You don't seem like. I'm I'm, I'm sitting here listening. But there was a small issue. 
The path they intended to take to get to Ethiopia led through the Danakil Desert, which was part of northeast Abyssinia at the time. The desert is roughly 120 miles of dry, hot earth that, during this period, was basically uncrossable. And seeing as marching thousands of troops across a desert carrying all of their means of survival on their backs would likely end in an exhausted and likely dead ground force, Italy had to find another way. So here comes one of the biggest game changers in modern warfare, the supply column. Michael, do you know what a supply column is? It's when you stack uh, six sheep high. <laughs> wow! And circle gets the square! No. <laughs> Italy's answer to their little pickle was to send 25 planes across the desert to drop supplies at drop sites. Instead of carrying all the food and water a soldier would need to cross the desert, they only carried some emergency rations. So it was the beginning of the first time they realized, oh, hey, we can just use planes to drop stuff. Air air supplies, basically. Yeah, air supplies. Yeah, that's what the... Yep. Uh, So a huge game changer in military stuff. Mm -hmm. And anybody who plays COD. The planes would drop cooking utensils, food, water, and live sheep. Yep, they strapped sheep into little harnesses and dropped those suckers into the desert. And yes, a link to the footage is in the show notes. Oh my god. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, we're going to watch one of these now, right? Do you want to watch it right now? Yes, please. You can't just say they strap sheep and there's a video and not let me watch. Let me watch. Oh my god. Okay, so now Michael has seen the sheep video. Enlightening. Yep. (laughs) Now, why they did this instead of dropping MREs, or at least canned food, is also contested. A lot of articles like to say things like, Oh, those silly Italians and their high food standards. But that makes no sense, considering they were fine eating MREs before and after this. Why do you think? Morale boost. Real, Real meat in the desert, probably a lot better than stupid reheated pizza. Okay. I personally subscribe to the twofer club. The Italians got two benefits out of this sh- these sheep drops. Oh. One was a morale booster to troops in an unforgiving terrain, fighting a war they did not quite understand. It would make sense. Don't tell me milk is the second one. I mean, that's still food. <laughs> and two was paratrooper practice. Il Duce or Benito Mussolini had very big plans for Italy. The Italian colonies in Africa were just the first steps to gaining real dominance. So knowing more wars would come, honing their military military skills was a must. And that's why Ethiopia is Italian. <laughs> well, only for a little while. <laughs> the Italians eventually beat the Ethiopian military and their emperor, Haile Selassie, was sent into exile. After this little boost of confidence, Italy declared war on... Uh, uh, France and Britain. Okay. Thought you're going to say another South African country. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, kind of, but not. Um, So then after this happened, then Germany's like, okay, bring it in, guys. Let's do this. I think we can conquer the world together. So the Axis powers happen. France and Britain were like, wait, oh, my God. This is going to backfire on us? Because they knew that they were going into this war against Ethiopia, and they're like, not a lot we can do. (sighs) Jeez, I'd love to try something. But uh, then it turned into Italy going like, now you guys are next. (laughs) Um, So everyone went, oh no, we didn't know this could be dangerous for us, which coincided with the beginning of World War II. 
The exiled Selassie was able to appeal to Britain to help fight the Italians back out of Ethiopia, and now that this was actually their problem too, Italian Somaliland beat out British Somaliland. So Britain owned part of Somalia, Somalia or Somaliland, I guess they call it, and Italy owned the other half, and Italy's like, we'll just take the what the British have of Somaliland. So they did. <laughs> and the British are like, hey, wait, that's mine. <laughs> You can't do that. So British uh, Britain agreed. After many battles, the Italians were dislodged from Ethiopia, and in the 1947 Peace Treaty of Italy, Italy declared Ethiopia's independence again. So supply columns were developed, some sheep went for a nice fly, some war crimes we didn't ever cover were committed, and to this day, Ethiopia is still not a spicy meatball. Don't many, say anything. How many jokes... How many... Uh... In your other two stories, how many more Italian jokes you got? <laughs> well, there's no more Italians, I don't think. Okay, <laughs> Side note, the official count for the amount of animals dropped in the Danakola Desert was 72 sheep and two bulls. So I guess cows got their wings in that war, too. How cute. So as, as we were watching the video, it's like, oh my god, those sheep were probably having the time of their life. Dude. And and they start taking a harness, harness off one, and it's like, oh, wait, that one's seen some stuff. That, that sheep <laughs> is not having a good time. <laughs> Which I guess is fine, because it's not like they're going to have them out there and, like, feed them or anything. They're just going to kill them. Yeah. <laughs> like, immediately. That thing is an, that's a desert desert. There's nothing out there for them. Anyways. Yeah, just seeing their little legs flinging around. It was like, how do they expect these sheep to actually just land? <laughs> Whatever. I don't I don't think they do that anymore. You would think I might that. be surprised. <laughs> okay. Lingerie company made parachutes for World War II pigeons or Utah fishing game dropped elk from planes with parachutes. Okay, here's my problem with the third one. I have a story that's very similar. But it's a different animal in a different state. <laughs> wow, what a coincidence, huh? Yeah, but it's just silly enough to where... Okay, give me World War II pigeons. <laughs> pigeons with parachutes, are you sure about pigeons that? Pigeons with parachutes. <laughs> okay. Okay, so lingerie company made parachutes for World War II pigeons. Okay, so if you listen to our spy episode, you will already be familiar with pigeons being used for espionage, usually to pass messages along, or even to fly away, snap some photos, and then come back to post them on the Instas. <laughs> okay, not that part. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there were roughly 56,000 carrier pigeons trained and implemented in the Second Great War, as the likelihood that they would be intercepted was very slim, owing to a 95% success rate of communication going through. Aw, good birds. But 56,000 is a lot for espionage alone, it would seem. That's because these little flying wonders were used for far more kinds of communication than just spying. Just to reiterate, carrier pigeons had a 95% success rate, which is incredible at a time like this when communication was so dire and opposing sides were spending most of their time trying to figure out how to impede and intercept communications. Although there are some really great stories about pigeons being intercepted. <laughs> Okay. And being swapped out with other pigeons and people not even noticing that that's not our pigeon. <laughs> Anyways, but that's not this story. In order to get the most important use out of these amazing birds, the U.S. wanted to strap a pigeon or two to paratroopers who would then parachute down to their drop site. The pigeon would then be able to relay a message back to base via a note strapped to its leg. 
However, there was a problem with this. How do you attach an animal with wings to a person who will be going through the air? Because they would just fly away. You would think if you just dropped them out of a plane. They'd just oh, shoot. I don't think they thought about that. <laughs> well, no, all of our pigeons. No, get back here. <laughs> I was too busy with my two pigeons in my hand. I couldn't pull I my I couldn't shoot. pull the shoot. <laughs> Enter the underwear and brazier company, Maiden Form. Now, if you guys listen to our episode on the moon, these are, this does a lot of callbacks. This is not the first time that we've covered a women's lingerie company coming to the rescue to make history. But this did definitely beat that story out by over 20 years. <laughs> well, they're very talented. Uh, yes, because holding the lady breasticles is a very important thing. And so they know the importance of a good fit. <laughs> oh, I know. I was just saying seamstresses are very, very skilled. Yes. Well, yeah, and at this time, uh, they had swapped over all of their factories to wartime factories, so everybody was making stuff for the war, nobody's making stuff for home. So I hope the women at home who were working in those factories had good bras before this, because they were not getting good bras now. That's... Do you call a male seamstress still a seamstress? Seamster? Seamster. I, no, they call him a tailor. Oh. What do you call a female cobbler? I don't is a know. cobbler a gender? I don't know, but when you think of a cobbler, you think you, you think of an old old dude in a workshop working on shoes. Yeah, and who gets help from little elves every night when he goes to sleep to finish the shoes because, oh geez, I never get to finish my shoes. <laughs> I'm just so sleepy. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> on December 22nd, 1944, Maiden Form was contracted to make 28,500 pigeon vests that would hold the birds comfortably keep their feet free, and keep them safe during their parapigeon adventures. Yay! <laughs> and according to AmericanHistory.edu, Maiden Form made parachutes as well, which is in uh, their Maiden Form Museum of things that they've done. is great. <laughs> Apparently, when Maiden Form wrote their tagline, there is a Maiden Form for every type of figure, they really meant it. <laughs> so, side note, Although I previously covered the British dropping containers full of pigeons down to occupied Europe with questionnaires to receive intel on German soldier movement and whatnot, I did not realize they actually sent down single pigeons in these pigeon vests with mini pigeon parachutes as well. Photos will be in the show notes. Also in the show notes will be a link to the television show Oddities where they sell a man one of the pigeon cages complete with parachute in case you want to start a delivery service to compete with Amazon drones. Yeah, well, the best I can do is three fifty. <laughs> well, I can trade you some shrunken heads. I want. I want to see a picture. You want to see the? Oh, so here's the blueprints for the vest from Main Form. Oh, it's so cute. It's super cute, and this is the bird oh with the little mini. Looks it like a hot dog. A tiny little <laughs> <laughs> that bird's like, this is not how God meant for this to happen. Looks like a pig in a blanket. <laughs> Just like the head's poking out and just the tail. <laughs> Do you ever know how to fly, but also realize other people are like, no, fly like this instead? <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're a missile now. <laughs> you're a missile instead. <laughs> I know you like to fly, but what about just drop? Just drop. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, Michael. Guess what? We did the same story. We finally did it. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> okay. Utah Fish and Game Dropped Elk from Planes with Parachutes. You know... We have a lot of issues in the U.S. I say that with a big smile. 
but we've definitely come a long way when it comes to nature conservation, in that we no longer push wildlife out of planes with parachutes. <laughs> In 1948, the country was still recovering from World War II and began appreciating the little things more. This included nature, but in a way that seems completely normal to us now. Who hasn't seen a beautiful forest and thought, man, I could live here? People do it a lot, especially now with many dreaming to escape the cramped style of urban living. They're like, oh, I hate how I just sit in my apartment and play Candy Crush, but I could be living out in the forest and playing Candy Crush. <laughs> I'm kidding. People enjoy whatever. People like nature sometimes, whatever. I like nature. Whatever. <laughs> so back in 1948, they ran into some of the same problems we face today with our animal brethren. A fight for space. This story isn't about elk, however, but instead the humble... What beaver. is it? It's the beaver. It's the beaver. <laughs> and it takes place not in Utah, but... Idaho. It's Idaho. <laughs> So does this mean we'll do your story right after? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, you can just, um, yeah, we'll just, you guys can just vote on who did it better. <laughs> <laughs> when residents of McCall, Idaho, and the Payette Lake area began to complain about the damage their furry neighbors were causing to their property, Idaho Fish and Game called in a man by the name of Elmo Heater to help. Heater was known to solve hard problems in the fish and game field and had previous experience with beavers specifically. So he gladly took the job. You could say he's a beaver veteran. Jeez. You don't have to say it like that. <laughs> and he knew exactly where he wanted to put the fuzzy little critters, too. The only problem was that the Chamberlain Basin, the location he was pining for, did not really have any access roads to get into with. It truly was wilderness. Audience, I don't know how much time you've spent in some of the West's bigger, less populated states, but we just spent some time in Idaho and Montana and can confirm there are no roads to anywhere at any time. <laughs> okay, I'm being facetious. I'm being facetious, but access to nature can be a hard thing to come by even today. Anyways, with Heater realizing this, he began brainstorming ways to get the beavers to the area that didn't involve vehicles. At first, he wanted to use pack mules, a common way even today for access to mountains and canyons. However, he learned quickly that mules apparently hate beavers and would freak out when loaded up with cages full of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just hilarious. The mules are like, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. You can put... Oh, Jesus, there's a beaver can, in there. <laughs> you can put a missile on me. You could put a bag of badgers, but beavers... Mm, I'm not cool with this. Get it man. off! Get it off! Get it off! Get it off! Oh God! It's one of those beavers. They just have like this weird phobia of beavers. <laughs> Finally, it came to him. Since the end of the war, there were tons of leftover parachutes that could be bought very cheap, and a plane could fly over any wilderness without the use of a road. That's a free fun fact just for you guys. Planes don't need roads. <laughs> the only thing left for him to figure out was the carrier. Because the beavers would be dropped by themselves, they needed to be in a carrier that would keep them safe, but would also release them when it hit the ground. Eventually, Heater designed a wooden box that would spring open upon impact, releasing the airborne beavers, but would be sturdy enough to transport them with safety and ease. Heater finally got to the test flights with their test subject fittingly named Geronimo, who Heater reported, after multiple tests, became resigned. And when they went to go pick him up, instead of them wrestling back into the box... He would just crawl right back in on his own. He's like, fine, I'll just do it. Well, he's like, let's go again. That was fun. Let's go again. <laughs> Not the first few times. He eventually <laughs> just like, I guess this is just my life now. <laughs> but it led to many beavers, including himself, to be able to live fruitful lives in environments away from humans. 
and at a cost of only $30 a flight per four beavers, which comes out to around $300 today, Idaho Fishing Game could call it a win as well. Unfortunately, the program only lasted for that year, relocating 76 beavers in all with only a single fatality. And according to Steve Liebenthal, an officer of Idaho Fishing Game, those beavers ended up creating some amazing habitat as part of what is now the largest protected roadless forest in the lower 48 states. But don't worry, footage of the only remaining film made about the parachuting beavers was recovered by the department's historian and can be viewed on YouTube. Link in show notes. Okay. Okay, well, mine was called The USA Parachuted Invasive Beavers in Idaho. That's not bad. So, honestly, honestly, I think we use different sources because mine is written from a different angle. Oh, okay. So, this is a story that was lost to time and file mismanagement. In 2015, a mislabeled and miscategorized film was released onto YouTube by Idaho Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, Link in the description. Uh, It's probably the same video. I just stop listening now and watch it. Uh, It's going to bring up a lot more questions than answers. So, in case you can't watch it or don't want to... The video starts with a man trapping a beaver or two, loading them into a 1940s truck, tagging the beavers on the ear, placing them into a Swiss cheese-looking box, loading the box onto a plane, and then a view from the plane of the Swiss cheese box floating through the air before a parachute opens, gently gliding the box to the ground. In Idaho in the 1950s, beavers were kind of a nuisance. They were damming rivers and streams in unpopulated areas, leading to water issues and drought conditions for these small communities. The goal of trapping and airdropping beavers? remove the beavers from a destructive landscape, and transplant them into places where their damming abilities could be supported by the waterways and benefit the human population. It was found in 1941 that three beavers had stabilized the water supply in Salmon, Idaho, by creating dams, instead of having the town build a costly dam. Wow. So, how successful was this operation? Well, nobody's really sure. The footage of the beavers was lost for over 60 years. There are a few articles in Time and Popular Mechanics magazines, but they didn't touch on how many beavers were air assaulted over Idaho or how many dams were created. In fact, from one of the articles, only three beavers had been parachuted successfully. That's because it took a skilled pilot with extensive knowledge of the terrain in order to fly low and close enough to remote streams to drop the beavers while keeping in mind the wind speeds so that the beavers' parachutes wouldn't end up in trees or the brush. The article also stated that drops for male and female beavers uh, were tried to be made within a few hundred yards of the stream and from each other in order to start a new colony. That makes sense. Because when I was watching that, I was like, what if that's all dudes, though? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, cool. We're all just going to sit around in the sausage party, I guess. (laughs) Nice river, but like, bro. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I used the NPR one, which doesn't have any information. The Boise State Public Radio dot org. No, I used I used a time and uh, 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 popular mechanics. I feel like I had another one. There's probably another one. On oh, my and and the thing. YouTube video. Yeah, and the YouTube video which I attached to NPR. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. Yeah, I thought that was. We finally did it. Well, <laughs> we did, but at least we didn't tell the same parts of the story. Yeah. I got a bunch of background, and he did a lot of the video. Which the video is very it's very funny <laughs> it's very funny because the way that they're describing everything is like yes what you are seeing looks very traumatic but let me tell you if this was you if this beaver could talk it would be saying wowee this is great <laughs> let's go again it's very funny okay well you got a 50 50 shot this week so yeah go me the, okay, so I'm just going to read all three of them just so that you get what my shtick was this week. 
The USA parachuted cargo elephants in Vietnam. The USA parachuted drugged mice in Guam. The USA parachuted invasive beavers in Idaho. Yeah, so it was all the USA parachuting. Wait, USA so wait, parachuted you animal did animals in place. Too. That's what yeah. I I was trying to do the same thing. I was gonna do, but then I had to change my last one because I realized I'd already covered pigeons <laughs> in World War Two. Yeah, the US... yeah, I was doing like the U the Idaho or I it was Utah online Utah p- parachuted pig uh, beavers whatever Italy parachuted sheep and then I like how we both did animals. <laughs> It's just an animal parachuting video or podcast. Okay, so it was... The USA parachuted cargo elephants in Vietnam. The USA parachuted drugged mice in Guam. Okay, I just want to make one small um, critique. Alice Obscura had an article called The uh, Bizarrely Specific... Or Bizarrely Complete List of Parachuting Animals. And none of these are on them. The sheep one either, but <laughs> bees aren't on them. Were beavers on the list? Beavers were top. Oh, okay. Well. Everybody loved the beaver story. <laughs> it's very fun. It is fun. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, cargo elephants into Vietnam. But drugged mice sounds... The thing is, drugged mice sounds more realistic, so it's probably the lie. Okay. Let's go with the cargo elephants. Might as well. You wouldn't lie about elephants. In Vietnam? It's going to be not in Vietnam. Excuse me. The USA parachuted cargo elephants in Vietnam. This is the lie. Oh, I hate this. You suck. And not for why you might think. Oh, I hate you. So, this story spawned a 90s Disney movie called Dumbo Drop. The main article I used was from 1995 when the movie was released, saying how the movie took creative liberties with the story. Anyways, as the Vietnam War waged farther and farther north, the USA set to rebuild South Vietnam. There were a lot of missions and operations that were supposed to bring stability to the region, through bringing the inhabitants the tools necessary for commerce, or resources for the USA. One such was Operation Baroom. Operation Baroom? Oh, are they going to fly on barooms like witches? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I hope that's not a place. (laughs) The Montillard villages in South Vietnam were ripe with useful lumber. Green Beret John Scott Gant was tasked with procuring the lumber from these villages as the U.S. Army was being gouged by local retailers for lumber. Gant reasoned that the local villagers could be trained to cut down their own forest, forests rich in mahogany. He procured a second-hand sawmill from an Australian company. He recruited other American officers with sawmill experience and then set to work training the locals, cutting wood from Trabang, an area that was contested by both the Viet Cong and the U.S. Okay. It worked great for all parties for a while the locals had learned to operate the sawmill and had begun to cut down trees and process them within six months the locals had cut trimmed rolled and processed all the lumber within a half mile of the logging camp but they now needed equipment to bring in lumber from farther out gant imported tractors trucks and diggers but within six months the harsh conditions and brutal terrain had made them all inoperable the village being so remote caused supply chain issues that the equipment could not be repaired on a regular schedule what was gant to do well, local elders told Gant that they used to use elephants as cargo vessels, and that if they had some, they could probably be used to transport lumber to the mill. Well, the mill was in a very remote place, about 300 miles from the nearest source of elephants for sale. It's impossible to walk elephants 300 miles, so plans were made to load the elephants on barges, take them upriver, and then walk them to their final destination. Uh, however, elephants get seasick, so they that don't plane like was the crapped. water. Oh no! <laughs> 
Then the plan was to airdrop them over the village. Oh, no. But the Air Force wouldn't consider it unless the elephants were tranquilized. After spending hours on the phone with zoos around the world, Gant found a tranquilizer dosage big enough in the UK and had it flown over. It looked like Gant might actually get his elephants to the sawmill. Then the Tet Offensive started, and there were no spare aircraft. Oh, no. The Tet Offensive was a North Vietnam-coordinated attack on more than 100 cities and outposts in South Vietnam. These were carried out with the hope that it would demoralize the American and South Vietnamese troops and cause the USA to pull out troops and South Vietnam to give up. When the USA was finally able to shift its focus back to its current operations, Operation Baroon was changed to an airdrop. The elephants were wrapped in cargo nets, placed on cushioned pallets, and then hoisted by Sikorsky MH-53 helicopters to the Montillard village. Oh my god. It was a huge event in the village. Everyone came from the countryside to view the spectacle. There were even members of news crews on site to document the occasion. Gant got the first elephant on the ground, gave it the antidote, and then the elephant got up and started being an elephant. Doing elephant things? Like, being scared? <laughs> then he got the second one down, and same thing. There's video coverage of this occurring, kind of, but it was overshadowed in the news cycle. The airlift took place on April 3rd, 1968. Would you want to take a guess what happened on April 4th? The end of the war? Nope. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Oh, God. Yeah, sorry. I don't remember what day the end of the war is. <laughs> there is pictures of Operation Baroom, uh, but not many people remember it due to the circumstances oh, around so, that time period. So basically, the, they got overshadowed by... Yeah. Well, Weird. a huge thing also happening. Weirdly, the only pictures I could find were on Shutterstock for sale. Like, they're not free oh, use. So I'm stealing this one to show you. I don't know if it's going to end up in the show notes because of that. I don't want to have to pay $200 for this photo. Oh, but it is pretty sweet. cool. If you if you Google uh, Operation Baroom Elephants, uh, you'll you you'll see the, the the elephants in the in the netting. I'm happy that they got airdropped. I am really terrified of the idea of a parachuting elephant. <laughs> because the bigger they are, the harder. The more parachutes you Can you imagine need. how much parachute you need? I mean, they don't drop tanks by parachute. Yeah, they do. I thought they well, airdropped them. No, they I, can. I saw, I did see, I, did, I saw a lot of um failed attempts of, uh, Dropping, like, oh Humvees God. and stuff. What was the movie where they started flying the tank while it was being airdropped <laughs> by shooting it? Oh, my God. Remember. Not a movie podcast, but Jesus Christ. That, that, that scene was what so that funny. I don't... Oh, my God. I, I would look it up. My, my tablet's gonna die. The A-Team. Oh, oh my God. Let me, let me Let me see if I can... Okay. That's well, a funny. I'm glad. I'm That's glad. actually really funny. I would watch that. Yeah, That's it, really freaking dumb. But that is, it's like, it's like dumb funny. <laughs> okay. Anyways, now that we're off of flying tanks. I guess the real one that sounds very realistic and I knew was, ugh, I hate you. The USA parachuted drug mice in Guam. Okay. This is going to get kind of weird for a second. So your family lineage can trace its roots back to Ireland, right? Yeah. Uh, what can you tell me about St. Patrick and snakes? Supposedly, St. Patrick was the one that chased all the snakes out of Ireland, but that's actually just an allegory for the Protestants. Oh, good. Okay, so you know. <laughs> so St. Patrick came to evangelize in Ireland in the 5th century. He was sent to turn the majority of pagan population towards Christianity. Well, one of the miracles he's credited with is banishing the snakes from Ireland. 
It's been said that he was on a 40-day fast on a hill in Ireland and became so irate with the snakes that he banished them out of the entire country, which probably didn't happen. Uh, like Brenna said... Oh. It's not snakes. <laughs> there hasn't been any evidence that snakes have inhabited Ireland since the last Ice Age. The conventional thinking is that the snakes were a codename for the pagan druids that he drove out when he brought Christianity. So what does this have to do with mice and Guam? There have been numerous times where an invasive species has been tried to be eradicated from a locale. Many are not successful. Sometimes they are. Is it when they decide to have a St. Paddy's Day party? Well, around 1940, brown tree snakes were introduced to Guam. This decimated Guam's natural bird population, gobbling up 12 species of birds and bringing 8 more to endangered levels of population. As many invasive species go, they have no pred natural predators and a plethora of food available. But do you know one of the brown tree snake's vulnerabilities? Let's see, the brown tree snake's vulnerability is eating something bad and getting a tummy ache. Acenaminophen. Oh, aspirin. That's right. Common over-the-counter Tylenol. Nice. Just 80 milligrams can kill a brown tree snake. That's about a sixth of a normal Tylenol pill. Oh, I see where this is going. It would take about um, 300 times that to kill a dog, cat, or pig. So we brush upon things and places that the U.S. government sticks its nose where it might not be prudent. But brown tree snakes in Guam might be one of the exceptions. The plan? Dose a mouse with a sixth of a Tylenol pill. Equip it with a parachute and drop it over the jungles of Guam. Of course. <laughs> You're just going to see a bunch of parachutes sticking out of snake mouths. <laughs> Quote, the process is quite simple, quipped one researcher, who probably wasn't involved with hiding the pill in a piece of cheese so the mouse wouldn't spit it out. <laughs> You're going to want to eat that whole thing, buddy. There you go. And the parachutes? Well, mice aren't even heavy enough for a green army man parachute. Aw, those little, little army men guys. So they had a few pieces of cardboard and green tissue paper attached to them to provide air drag, and extra weight to put the mice in the proper landing zones. All in all, the mice air assault in Guam cost $8 million in 2013. And was the de desired effect accomplished? Well, kind of. The brown tree snake is still found in Guam. But in 1990, it was estimated that there were 20 to 50 brown tree snakes per hectare on the island. As of 2019, it's down to about 8 to 20 snakes per hectare. So it it, wow. it kind of worked. Yeah. You probably had a bunch of cats getting super wrecked out there, though. Being super healthy. <laughs> There's very few ways to completely eradicate it, but that that's about a 40% decrease in snake population. So I guess that's good. That is good. Anyways, the most incredible part about this story is that, according to the NBC article I found, it's only the fourth largest rodent air assault ever conducted by the USA. Okay, well, that's great. I was unable to corroborate this fact with any other sources, but to even think there was one, even one bigger is just nuts. <laughs> Why do we have to drop rodents all the time? So, there was this story, and I didn't take the time to read it because I thought I didn't want to change all my stuff. So, according to Atlas Obscura, and it looks like maybe more history stuff, including Airspace Mag, the U.S. during World War II, before dropping the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, dropped bats in parachutes with little missiles on them, <laughs> okay. hoping that 
they would drop and they'd go down and when they'd land they'd fly up they would drop them into like civilian areas and so that they would the bats would go up and fly into people's attics and then set off fires inside causing panic it's very very messed up and apparently it did happen (laughs) But it's another case of people strapping, they called them kamikaze, oh, it was napalm bombs, that's where they were. Yeah, so we were trying to get napalm into people's attics and starting fires and places where it would be hard for them to get to to stop them, Hmm. which seems, oh, insane. Against the Geneva Convention? (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Oh, I guess Agent Orange is against the Geneva Convention Yeah, I guess it's mustard gas and Agent Orange and... DDT. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that that one's one of the side stories. Do you have notables? Uh, no, but that does remind me of, uh, there was a German, uh, during World War II, there was a, a, a German operation that was to equip dogs with explosives. And then they trained the dogs to uh, go run up next to, next to tanks, uh, thinking that they would go train them to run up next to the Allied tanks. Uh. The Allies would be uh more uh likely to like more more likely to take a dog in and Mm -hmm. then and then it would be a troop killer well the issue is the only tanks that the germans had to practice on practice with the dogs on train them on were german tanks so they couldn't actually get them to run towards the allied tanks because they they were so used to going to german tanks so it was backfiring on them yeah uh, not related to parachuting at all. I just, I just think no, that story but, is very yeah, funny. Yeah, it's just the way the animals have been used in war is very, very interesting up. and very messed up. Not only for what they are supposed to be doing to people, but what ends up happening to the animals. <laughs> it's so messed up. Yeah, we, we should probably do an animals in war episode. Yeah, I mean we're going to be doing an animals episode soon, anyways. But animals in war is a huge topic obviously i haven't stopped sh- i can't shut up about pigeons apparently <laughs> <laughs> oh no other than that I, I i didn't have anything all right well oh hey did you ever play with those little um green soldiers oh or... yeah all the time i love those things they have the parachute you ball them up and you throw them up in the air and go wee, 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 mm-hmm. wee, 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 and sometimes they never work the parachuting guys were the best they were I had a lot of little army men. I loved those buckets of army men. I had so many. And I knew the different qualities between them. You could tell which one you got at KB Toys and which one you got at, like, <laughs> Toys R Us. <laughs> Not a war podcast. <laughs> okay. You good? Yeah, I guess so. All right. Have a good one. Bye. For show ideas, inaccuracies, or general comments, you can email us at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. Intro and outro music provided by The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void, found on the Free Music Archive, CCBY license. Thanks for listening. This new free video shows you one simple trick you can use tonight to get any girl you want turned on, attracted to you, and begging to go to bed with you. Fast! Use this trick to sleep around, or use it to get a girlfriend who is way out of your league. <laughs> Excuse me, I would like to return this one tip. Uh, <laughs> she did not come to bed with me fast enough. <laughs>